that's really what these subconscious beliefs, like the belief, like you mentioned that I'm not enough or I'm not worthy or I'm unlovable. Like if something like that exists in the subconscious, then that's going to show up in your relationships, in your friendships, in your work. It's going to show up in your nutrition. It's going to show up in all different areas. And just like a virus, it's going to infect and invade. And it's just going to subtly motivate decisions that are happening in those areas as well. Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey everyone, you're on air with Ella, and today we continue with our Life Balance Wheel series, and I'm bringing on a guest today named Bonnie Kelly, who I had the pleasure of meeting through another interview, which we'll talk more about later. But today we're talking all about personal growth, that sort of piece of the pie, if you will, on the Life Balance Wheel. And really, I I don't know about you, Bonnie, I think everything we're going to talk about sort of bleeds into every other slice of the pie. What do you think? Absolutely. You know, I say that um, those all of those pillars, I actually got a chance to look at your uh, your wheel and your mental emotional is going to affect every element of that. And, you know, without spending that personal development time, it could have devastating effects on all areas of your life. I just read your amazing new book. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. It's called True to Your Core, Uncovering the Subconscious Beliefs that Wreak Havoc on Your Life. Bonnie, can you give everybody a quick idea of who you are and what you do? I'm actually a speaker, author, and coach. I mean, those are the three words that best describe me in the business world. Uh, I say in the personal world, I'm a goofy doofy uh, dork who loves my husband. Uh, in the professional world, you know, I've, me and my team have actually developed programs and uh, workshops, speaking. We have corporate programs to help people in uh, raising their emotional intelligence and really recognizing their own personal role in how uh, they can improve their lives and give them the tools and strategies to do just that. Bonnie, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because you are an expert in an area that I am exploring, just super personally interested in and really deep diving into in my own life right now. Mm-hmm. And so when I came across your book as the as the universe would have it, see, seeing fit to give me your book at exactly the right time. Always uh, happens. Yeah, <laughs> you help us understand things like negative brain bias and negative core beliefs and how these beliefs occur, how they become a part of our programming and how they in some cases can end up running our lives. And Bonnie, you have so much to say about this and so much personal experience to draw from. But I thought before we got into some of the what's and how's, I thought you could sort of explain to us, almost like give us a little negative core belief and mindset 101. And just can you explain almost the, the science of how this all works? Yeah. So, I mean, you brought up a couple key words, you know, that negative brain bias, uh, the, uh, that kind of connects with that negative core beliefs. And those two things go hand in hand. So one of the core principles that we teach is, you know, it, it's, it actually kind of falls back on something Gandhi said over a century ago. Um, and he said, your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, 
Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values, and your values drive your destiny. And when I was compiling all of the information in, in, in creating my methodology around how to explain the core beliefs and how your brain is working against you and how these things and how to transform that uh, and really actually change the neuroplasticity of the mind, like really changing the format where the brain begins to work with you versus working against you. Um, and it's a very like difficult process. Uh, it can be a very difficult process. Well, when I read that quote by Gandhi, I mean, it really says true. It's like those beliefs. It's what it is that you believe about yourself, your life, and the people that you see in it. What your that shapes your perception, and that and that perception is what influences and infiltrates your thinking and how you think about things. And then those thoughts actually can generate a feeling, and it, it it can develop in how we complain and what we speak about. And then that starts to show up in our actions and our reactions and our behavior. We have these pivotal life moments, these experiences in our life in our pre-adolescence that plant a seed in the mind. And when that seed gets planted, and it's usually a toxic seed, the brain starts to work against you. Cause like what it's doing is like looking out in the world and saying, okay, I just had this experience where it says that I'm not enough. Now the brain is like, is this true or not? I need to know if this is true or not. But just like if you've bought a brand new car, uh, if as soon as you buy it and you drive it off the lot, all of a sudden it, you notice that everybody else seems to have that car, Ella. Well, it's not that everybody went and bought it. It's just your brain starts paying attention to it. Well, once that seed is accidentally, and that's literally what happens, that they get installed on accident, gets installed in the mind. Now it just starts looking out and it starts to perceive other opportunities to validate itself. And it starts to gain this momentum and it gains this power and it becomes, it starts attaching itself to our identity. And once it attaches that, it becomes so true that it becomes true to your core. And that's really what the essence of that book is about. To me, this is the epiphany when you say, then it looks for evidence to support it. That yeah. is, so you, one of the facts that you share in your book is that the subconscious mind is estimated to control about 80% of what you do yeah. on a daily basis. And that's the primary motivator behind the majority of your decision making. Bonnie, our subconscious mind <laughs> controlling 80% of what we do. And if you think about it, if you really try to parse that, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the hard part is that we don't really recognize that it's the separate subconscious mind is such a powerhouse, right? I mean, because we're always actively engaged in the conscious mind, right? What we're thinking about, what we're doing. But if you really step back for a moment and you really start to evaluate your day, for example, like you probably didn't have to consciously think about how to get dressed, how to brush your teeth, how to tie your shoes, how to even cook, how to get ready, how to drive your car. All of these tasks are programs that have been installed in the subconscious. So these are all different trainings and conditionings. These are like literally programs that we've trained our subconscious that it can take over to do that. So we can be talking on the phone. We could be thinking about something else and mindlessly performing things without consciously being aware of it. So those are constructive but where we need to start shedding a light on is the destructive mm -hmm. programs, the viruses of the mind that all of us have it to some degree installed in our hearts or on our minds. And that, that lurking in the subconscious is what is creating and wreaking havoc and creating destruction uh, in our physical being, our mental being, our happiness, uh, our joy, our motivation, or even our success. We can all appreciate that we can drive and we have the mental capacity to do 
unfortunately, like 25 other things. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it if you're doing that right now. And we we understand that. And so we can appreciate that as fact because we can think about other yeah. things. We can carry on a conversation. And right. what we, I think, overlook too easily is that we also subconsciously are running other programming, as you said, like, hmm, I'm unlovable. I'm fat and worthless. I have no purpose. I'm a failure. I'm not good at anything. And these are also subconscious programs that we that we have running in the background and you call them right. viruses. Yeah, because they work like viruses, right? Like, I mean, they're, I like to kind of think of the brain like a computer. You have your conscious and your subconscious. So these are basically like the, the, the monitor and the tower, right? And all the programs, programs lie on the tower, but you have to use and engage the monitor to instruct the tower on what to do. But if a virus gets installed in that tower, it's not just going to infect one program, it's going to infiltrate all of those programs. And that's really what these subconscious beliefs, like the belief, like you mentioned that I'm not enough, or I'm not worthy, or I'm unlovable. Like if something like that exists, in the subconscious, then that's going to show up in your relationships, in your friendships, in your work, in your sales. It's going to show up in your nutrition. It's going to show up in all different areas. And just like a virus, it's going to infect and invade. And it's just going to subtly motivate decisions that are happening in those areas as well. Well, and you said this, Bonnie, and I just want to highlight it again. You said that the way this works is we we have a belief. And in the book, you explain that we have a belief. We Life provides support evidence through experiences, right? (laughs) Which we filter. You explain how we filter, you know, our mind gloms on to what it chooses to glom onto. And then we, the belief becomes validated as fact, as programming, as that virus that resides in our system because of the supporting evidence that we have filtered to support that belief. And is that the negative brain bias, Bonnie? Or is that just when we're more prone, we sort of default to the negative interpretation? the filtration process. So the negative brain bias is just like your brain, it's kind of like your brain's survival, right? Like your brain is just naturally hardwired to kind of uh, retain and record and restore negative experiences over a positive one, right? So it's kind of like all of... All of our memories, right, when they're filed in the mind, like if you imagine like a filing cabinet, they're not being filed numerically. They're not being filed alphabetically. They're being filed based on what the brain perceives as relevant. Well, I mean, think about this. What is your brain going to consider as more relevant, a threat or a moment of joy and his complete satisfaction? But where the brain struggles is the difference between a perceived threat and an actual threat. And that's when the perceived threat, that's when the brain really is working against you is when it starts to make assumptions of threats that aren't actually there. So there are two key points I just want to flush out for everybody that I really want us all to start with the same understanding about. So, so I love your analogy of a filing cabinet that you were, that you just touched on because you, you say all of your memories fill a filing cabinet in this metaphor and the files are not stored numerically. They're not organized. They're not in there alphabetically and tidily. And mm-hmm. your brain stores all the negative memories in the front of the filing cabinet, as you just said, for easy access while tucking the positive ones toward the back. Correct. <laughs> you said this in its simplest context is a negative brain bias. And it was developed again for, to, to help support our survival. We, of course, are not aware of how much it impacts our own feelings of self-worth, how we interact in relationships, how we perceive others' reactions to us, etc. 
Right. That is a, um, it's, it's so powerful when you just start recognizing like how your brain is fooling you and how it is working against your own happiness. Right. And it's not that your brain is defective or your brain is bad. It's just that we have evolved beyond this need for those primitive survival tactics, but our brain is still kind of operating on those primitive survival, the tactics. And so what you just need to do is, is, is work with your brain, work with this bias and starting to transform transform it. And by transforming it, then we can then start using the brain to work for us and against us. And you can completely uh, rewire. And I, and I say rewire because it's, it, that's that neuroplasticity element is that you can change the neuro uh, wiring frequencies of the brain to actually have your brain start filing the information differently. So negative core beliefs then are the subconscious statements that we hold to be true about ourselves, right? Correct. Yeah. And then we look for consciously or unconsciously, we look for supporting evidence of those presumed facts. So here's the money shot. Once we adopt a power statement or a negative belief as truth, the power statement I'm assuming is positive and constructive, whereas the negative belief is destructive. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes. So so once, because we can adopt either, it's our choice. Yes. Um, (laughs) Once we adopt a power statement or a negative belief as our truth, we habitually look for proofs to support it. So drum roll, we repeatedly act and react in ways that confirm this belief as fact. Yes. That's the mm-hmm. whole, that's, I mean, Bonnie, that's like the whole ball game of adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that's the big thing. And so, you know, you actually said something I want to clarify. You said um, that, you know, well, it's our choice to think of how we want to feel and think about ourselves. And you're absolutely right. But it only becomes a choice when you become aware. Right. Uh, initially, and this is one of the things I say very often is, you know, initially those programs, beliefs, you know, they got installed on accident. You didn't realize they were happening. You didn't have a choice. Like, and then they just default and they start playing out. And until you know better, until you know different, you are actually, you don't have a choice. Like it'll just operate like a program in your computer will just run. Like it's not biased. It doesn't have an opinion. It doesn't have feelings. It just operates. And so, but once you become the rich choice, I say it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility once you become aware to do something different. No, that's so important. And it's so important to emphasize where the accountability actually lies. In other words, it's not your fault. It is your responsibility if once you become aware to decide to choose a different story for yourself. We're going to talk so much more about that. Um, It's not easy, is it, Bonnie? No, gosh, no. It takes a lot of work and dedication. And I say, look, there's no substitute for the work. Like you can come up with a thousand excuses and that's your choice. But the ultimate decision is like, what do you want out of your life? And if you want to have everything in this, in this lifetime and life is so fleeting. It's so short, Ella. It's so short. And I mean, we think it's like a lifetime, but it feel it's just like a passing blink of an eye of a moment. Why would you want to spend any of that time being miserable? Well, Bonnie, I want to pause there because this is where I really want the audience to understand that you have earned the right to talk about this, to take a line from Dale Carnegie, because you're, you're a beautiful, bubbly, healthy, blonde, blue eyed, just lovely young woman. And somebody might first be like, oh, here comes another life coach telling me to be, smile and be happy. And it's my responsibility. and It's my choice. And, and honestly, Bonnie, they might shallowly write you off without understanding that the waters oh, yeah. run a lot deeper than that, because sometimes the internet makes life seem a little too shiny and glossy for my liking. Am I making Amen. any sense at all? 
Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna t- I'm gonna confess because I'm a super shallow person. I'm gonna confess the following the following prejudice. If I had gotten a cold email from someone representing you, being like, "Have Bonnie on. She's an author, a speaker, and a coach, and she's adorable," I would have been like, "Next." And thank God I was introduced to you the way that I was because I heard you on an interview with Sean Croxton, and I will link to that in the show notes because it deserves to be shared. I, I love Sean Croxton anyway. He's always just one of the best for me. Yeah. He interviewed you, but then I read your book immediately, and that's how I was introduced to you. And Bonnie, you are a story of transformation, and I would love for you to explain to us some of your own experiences. Can you talk to me about your early life as it was so integral in instilling some of your own negative core beliefs, um, and of course you wouldn't have known that at the time. Well, and that's and that's why I say it's not your fault, right? I mean, because who would think that an experience at five years old would have the power to install a program or a belief in the mind mm-hmm. that would eventually play out through decades of my life and my experiences? And we you know, all like, and we all have them. Yeah, like who? Nobody would think. Like I mean, it's just mind-boggling. So, you know, and I love, I love this, and this is why a big part of why I wrote the book in the way that I did is, you know, to really kind of take away those excuses to show people that, you know, like look, like I've been through it. I've been in the muck. I've been in the dirt. And you have a choice. And you can have better. And there's something better. And so that really does set us apart. And I, and you know, I love, love, love that your honesty on this because I do get dismissed a lot, right? Because I am this bubbly, you know, well-postured, you know, a successful woman that everybody's just like, uh, you're just like everyone else. And I'm like, I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it's like, okay, yeah, well you, that's, if you want to do that, that's your choice. But if you want to learn more, Mm -hmm. here's an example. So, uh, I start off the book and, and, and this is that very first story is like this experience. So, you know, my parent, like my mom married really young. My mother, she, right after she uh, yeah, graduated high school. teenagers, right? Yeah, they yeah. were. They, they got married. My dad entered the middle mil, uh, military and immediately just whooshed away down to, uh, down to Florida where my mom had her first son. Well, you know, if you can imagine for my mom, she's 19. She has no support system, no family. My dad's out to sea six months at a time, you know, so she's left with a newborn. You know, she's really struggling with this. Now, I didn't know this until years and years later, but but, um, you know, so she's having a hard time. Well, then my mom, my dad gets moved again and, uh, and now they're in Tennessee and I'm born. And so they, they're just really struggling because he's gone so much. She doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have any support. Now she has two children to try to take care of. And just like, you know, many relationships, you know, they split and my mom had her own negative programmings that were playing out. Mm-hmm. And my dad had his own programming that were playing out. And because of that, so you have these good people who have defective programming that is now running their decisions as well. And so you have this pivotal moment. Uh, and it was like last time that I saw my father where, you know, they just, the, all of the frustration, anger came to a head and we were at my grandmother's house. Uh, and my brother and I were, uh, it was like the first time we had seen our dad in months. Um, I think it was like probably six or eight months since we had seen him, we were celebrating the holidays and my mom was absolutely, you can't keep them for the night. And, but we didn't know this. Right. And so my dad's like, 
like, no, so I she's have calling. You're having like this idyllic yes. family experience and she's calling and calling and you hear the tensions mount. Yes. There's all this fighting between my, uh, you could hear that in the next room, you know, my father, um, screaming and my grandfather's, you know, angry and my grandmother's pacing and me and my brother are like sitting at the table at five and six years old eating ice cream. You know, like we're like, what is everybody's problem? Uh, you know, it just came to this head. My mom comes, uh, rushing in, uh, so and she showed just, up. She did. Yeah. She came to kidnap us back from him. Like, cause he, she believed he was trying to kidnap us and he was just, you know, wanting to spend the night with us. And, you know, so there's this moment where we're in the kitchen. My dad had already stormed outside. We're eating our ice cream. My grandma comes in the kitchen. She's pacing and the garage door slams open and my mom doesn't want to step foot in the house. And she's just bawling and she's pleading with us. Like my babies come with me. And, you know, this is the ironic moment of this five-year-old little girl is just like but I'm not done with my ice cream you know like because that's a five-year-old but I'm I'm eating my ice cream and you know my grandma gathered our jackets and you know we rushed outside and you know unknowns to us in this moment you I mean you can sense the defeat in my father you can just sense the tension like him and my stepfather just almost got into this brawl like out in the front they were shoving and punching at each other and you know and we get rushed in the car my mom is just hysterical and you're just like so conflicted and confused and you know that night my mom was just trying to pretend nothing was happening and trying to comfort us and my brother asked are we ever going to see daddy again and and in that moment mommy said no and so right there, like, there's just a part of you that is just like, there's just like devastate. What did I do? What did I do? And, you know, now I'm too young to have really a perception outside of me to understand that this is just a bad divorce. This is mom and dad who are angry. This has nothing to do with me because as children were very egocentric at that age, right? Everything is happening and revolving around us. It's because of me. And so there's a little part of me that started to buy in or a little seed planted in the mind that I must not be worthy or I'm not lovable or daddy doesn't love you anymore. And unfortunately, you know, that story got perpetuated through, you know, the next few years. Well, if, uh, I, may we, be, if I may be blunt and I don't yeah. need to interject, but your mom was fairly explicit with that kind of language. She was. Yeah. And really what she, you know, so I, I know her intent now. Sure. Uh, because I mean, I, I, it was devastating for children. Okay. But I don't, you know, she wasn't being malicious, but it, it definitely was very dysfunctional. Right. But she would have us call our father, Mr. Nobody, right. We had to refer to him. She wanted us, she thought we were young enough to just forget about him. She was remarried. Our, our, our stepfather ended up adopting us. Uh, so our name was changed and she was just so fixated on this is good. We can't ruin this, you know? Uh, and she was so angry, you know, she kept saying, Mr. Nobody doesn't love us anymore. But as a kid, you don't hear the us. All you hear is he doesn't love you anymore. And so that was what started to perpetuate that story and started really filling my heart and mind with this idea that I was not only unlovable, but I was worthless of love. And that really kind of started to take seed in the mind and started to create a lot of havoc from that point on. <laughs> I think it's important to point out and out of sensitivity and respect for you as well, that the point of this is not even remotely 
to hang your mom out to dry here. I mean, oh, it yeah. really is. I, 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 want, I think it's important to articulate the facts because it's so important for us as adults now to consider what language that we're using. We're, we're talking with plenty of people who are in tough circumstances, and it's so important yeah. to share what damage adult language can do to a child's mind. Um, and also, your mom was reacting out of her own negative core beliefs That's and the it. programming and the story that she was running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it took me a many, lot of work, Ella. I'm going to be honest with you. So, you know, the, the, the healing process, you know, there was so much blame and confusion and hurt mm-hmm. and resentment and anger with my family and amongst us, you know, and now that I've really spent, you know, like decades, really like over a decade working on this and healing myself and getting to this other place, like I can really now like get that third eye or that bird's eye view and recognize that like, gosh, like, that really was my mom's own worthlessness playing out. Like she was struggling with not being enough and she was struggling with not being lovable. And that's why that language was coming out. It really had nothing to do with me, but because it was coming out of her that as a child, I took that personal and I didn't have the ability to separate. And though it was not right, like that is not healthy of a conversation for my mother. Uh, I, you know, it's, she was doing her best in that moment. And I often say this, you know, people are doing their best and sometimes their best ends up sucking but it's their best in that moment and you know it is recognizing that we do the same thing I mean as the story progresses in that book you know I started doing my best and my best started to really suck as well because I started creating drama and conflict and chaos and making really crappy decisions but those were my best based on the operating system that I had installed in my mind at that time. Right. And forgiveness, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about this, but forgiveness does not equal validation of what was done to you. Yes. You're not validating it. You're just accepting that it happened, not accepting that it was okay. Uh Um, and so that's something, that's another thing that I think that we cling to, um, and, or sometimes that impedes our own healing is when our egos caught up in no wait, they did this to me. Well, yes, they did. And if you continue to live on this earth, things will continue to keep happening to you around you. And at the same time, everybody's running their own game here. Everybody's running their own core programming. Right. And I want to talk about what happened to yours. So, so you say, you know, you sort of live out your beliefs. Well, it, it sounds like you did. And it sounds like your mm-hmm. negative core beliefs were something along the lines of I'm not worthy and nobody will ever love me. Or maybe you had some abandonment fears in, in oh, your a lot of abandonment. Yeah. How did those negative core beliefs influence you in your early adulthood, Bonnie? Like, how did you live that out? And, 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 mm-hmm. and I think that this, this is important so that we can, in fact, talk about how transformation works. Right. Well, if you can imagine that, um, so the seeds just planted and, you know, my family had their own dysfunction, right? Just like I think most families do. And, you know, but really became this nasty place when there was a sexual scandal. Um, you know, this, I was sexually molested as a child. And when that came out and then it, there was this big cover up, uh, we talk about in the book to kind of cover that up and, you know, and then, but by doing that, by kind of sweeping it all under the rug, it perpetuated the sexual, um, abuse. And so throughout the teenage years, you know, there was just, I mean, I truly believed to my essence that I was worthless. Like you could not convince me. Um, I didn't know I felt that. I didn't know that I, I, I believed that about myself sure. and I didn't know what that belief, what, how that was affecting me. But 
I knew it to my essence, right? And there's no about, because I had so much evidence of my parents abandoning me. I mean, they had booted me out when I was young. So I was, you know, a homeless teen. Uh, I started my first relationship. I got addicted to drugs because the first guy that, that showed me love, Ella, happened to be a cocaine dealer. <laughs> Naturally. Of course, you know, that's just how it went. And, but that, that just led me down a different path because all of a sudden I discovered a substance that could numb out all this pain and, you know, that I didn't have to feel. And I was getting all this attention because I was like this party girl. And I was like, you know, um, uh, like the life of the party. I was just fun to be around. And I was just like, I didn't obey the law. And I was making all of these horrible decisions because it was me trying to, uh, it was all emanating from this place of worthlessness. Well, as soon as you got arrested, validation. As soon as the guy broke up with you, validation. As soon as I made a mistake, validation. As soon as my parents disapproved, validation, right? And it just continued to perpetuate and build this story bigger and bigger and bigger to this pivotal point where I literally was ready to commit suicide. And, you know, luckily for me, fate, uh, universe, God intervened. I, I can't even, I can't even tell you how unreal it is when you really start thinking about this moment and it just was the opportunity for me um, to change my life and that was the moment when I reconnected with my real father when I was 21 years old. I think it's important for us all to understand that where you came from was a history of abandonment, of rejection, of betrayal by the people who are supposed to be protecting you. I yeah. mean, beyond. I'm not going to give away all of the story yeah. points. Um, I think your story is so worth reading, and I encourage everybody to do so. But yeah. to put a not too fine uh, nutshell on it, Bonnie, by the time you were in your early, early 20s, uh, you had been sexually abused. Um, yep. physically abused, mm -hmm. publicly humiliated, and completely abandoned or betrayed by essentially everybody that you held dear. Everyone I knew. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when I thought about this later in life, and of course, it is so much easier, you know, to look back and have a different perspective. You know, uh, they say hindsight's twenty twenty, But, you know, I mean, I really can look back now with, you know, with a, a, def a different, because I've done the work, you know, so now I can look yeah. back and have this different perspective. And it's amazing. I, I say that pivotal moment that I'll share here in just a moment uh, with my, f that, that reconnection with my father, you know, I think that the universe or God, you know, knew that I had to be stripped of all hope to move every bit of hope. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm in this dire situation. I mean, my life is coming back to a head again. I'm homeless. I'm, I just fought off the sexual predator. My family, you know, is abandoning me. I have everything is just back into this pivotal moment at 21. And I just was like, I, I can't handle this anymore. But now that I see that, I, I know that that moment is that God had to strip me of everything. I had to be crumbled to my knees in order for me to change. Because there's an old saying that you only change for two reasons. You learn enough where you want to or you hurt enough where you have to. And I had to hurt. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine when my father, you know, he got stripped away from his children. You know, there was when we were kids, like we used to be able to talk to him for a year after that last moment of seeing him. Uh, but my mom would hover over us and we weren't allowed to talk to us. And we always had to ask, Daddy, did you sign the papers? Daddy, did you sign the papers? Well, as kids, we didn't know that the papers meant, did you give us up for adoption? 
Like we didn't know. And our mom was using us to try to get him to sign the papers to let us go so we could have a life. Well, eventually, you know, that was wearing on the children. And eventually my dad did sign the papers. Right. So losing his children. I mean, he went to this dark place. Right. I mean, he just went, I mean, like into this dark hole. Like you was all touch with him for this. Yeah. I have no connection. I have nothing to do with him. Right. Daddy doesn't love us anymore. Mm. That's all I knew. Mr. Mm. Nobody doesn't love you anymore. Right. But anyway, so he goes on this journey, Ella, and he just he eventually finds personal development and he goes on this quest to learn how to heal his life, his wounds, his mistakes. And, you know, it takes him into this Native American reservation and he's on this spiritual quest with this uh, this tribe. It was with the Cherokee tribe. He went back to, you know, back in our heritage and he found out we had Cherokee. So he really just wanted to go study these these tribal things. And he's on this quest. And at the end of this thing, like the, the Native American chief comes running up to my father and is like, I had a vision that one day one of your children is going to call and the answer has got to be yes. My, he, my dad's like, which kid? And he's and like, I don't know. What's the question? Yeah, what's the question? He's like, I don't know. My dad's like, when is it going to happen? He's like, I don't know. All I know is someday in the future, one of your children is going to call and the answer has to be yes. Now, I'm at this point 21. I br- I briefly met my father once when I was 18, but I was so angry at him. I had so much rage that we didn't stay really and connect. Uh, and my brother met him when he was 18 and they kind of connected, but they lost touch as well. So now flash forward three years later, I'm in Michigan and it's like 10 o'clock at night. I'm so desperate, so mortified, so like in the bottom, like I'm praying for God to hit the, this hotel with a meteor shower. I'm like, please just do it for me. I'm so coward. Please just do this for me. I'm so scared. And cause I'm just so committed to just ending it all. I am so over it. And I have this moment where somehow like the, it's getting brought to me that you should call your father. And so I pick up the phone and I call and I get his voicemail. So I panic in the last second, I leave a message that just says, Hey, I haven't talked to you in a while. I just call in to see how the weather is. And I hang up the phone. Right. <laughs> My dad wakes up. So he wakes up and he like asks, he wakes his girlfriend up. He's like, it's the moment. It's the moment. He just knows instinctually from that voicemail, right? From that pathetic 30 second voicemail that this is the moment. And he calls me back and I answer the phone and and him and I are just talking for a moment. And and he's like, okay, look, because I'm just talking about the weather, right? And he's like, look, if the answer to your question is already yes, does it make it easier for you to ask? And I just went in shock. Like I just was, and before I could even think, the words mumbled out of my mouth, can I move to California? And he said, yep. And we spent an hour on the phone just planning out what the next three days of my life were going to look like. And I gave up everything I owned. Uh, I had $300 to my name and I hopped on a one-way ticket. I spent 100, 130 of it on a one-way ticket to, ticket to California. And I came out here uh, detoxing on the cha- train and just really committed to saying, okay, Bonnie, this is your chance. Nobody knows you to change your life. And that's what I ended up doing. No. And so you say you liken the living the life that you did for so many years to wearing distortion glasses. And so is this the event in your life that allowed you to remove the distortion glasses or is that too pat an answer? No, it really isn't. It's it's a lot of work that goes involved into into changing. Is that constantly falling off the horse, getting back on, and falling off the horse and getting back on. And you know, when I came here, I mean, yes, I was excited, motivated to change my life, but uh, there's so much to untangle. And those glasses you're talking about, like these are those perception goggles, and we really go into detail, guys, um, in the book to, to kind of really explain it very simply. But basically, like once you have this belief, the belief is now like 
invading how you think and perceive. So if I believe that I'm worthless, right, I'm going to think thoughts that are going to coincide with what I believe about myself. So when I get presented an opportunity to get hired for a new job, if I don't feel that I'm worthy of that job, there's a good chance that I will unconsciously self-sabotage the interview, or I'll forget about the date and not show up to it, or people you date, right? Like, if I feel worthless, I'm not going to go date a guy who's going to treat me right, right? I will unconsciously be attracted to guys that fit within what I understand, fit what I know. So Mm -hmm. those are those goggles, right? And and that's how it starts to do that self-fulfilling prophecy, that self-defeating prophecy, right? And so when I got on that train, you know, I didn't even know I was wearing goggles still. Uh, and you know, I mentioned this and Sean actually, you know, he's like, Bonnie, you didn't tell us what book it was. So in the book I mentioned, you know, I, I got introduced to a book within the first year I was in California and it was actually Wayne Dyer's the power of intention. Mm. And it really kind of just struck a chord. Like, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm participating in my suffering. Like, how is that possible? Like I'm a victim. I've had all of these things. I've, I've been victimized my whole life. I've been abused and abandoned and neglected. I'm a victim, right? And and then when you start recognizing like, oh my gosh, no, that victim mentality that was as a result of these beliefs and these beliefs are what perpetuate my behavior and my decisions. And then I'm putting myself in these situations that are perpetuating them. So that insight took a long time to really even develop. And then it was just like, I, as soon as I read that book, I went on a mission and for many years, I mean, I was just gobbling up personal development stuff. Cause I was just like, Oh heck no. If I'm participating in this crap, like this gotta end excuse Mm -hmm. my language right I don't want this I mean I see people happy and it would piss me off Ella because they're (laughs) smiling and I'm like how could you enjoy this this life sucks you know and you know it just it just like I was like I want that and I desperately desired to have love and be lighthearted and joyful and to not have the suffocating thought patterns of feeling worthless and unlovable and that I wasn't enough and to just keep cutting my life short and cutting my life short and working dead end jobs and, and all of these horrible things that I just was, I was over it. So it took a lot of work, a lot of self-discovery to help me, you know, to really to develop that. And that's what the book, you know, I mean, you basically get the best of everything that I've learned in a decade and said, this is really what's going on. This is what you need to work on. And this is where you need to start putting your attention because it is not in your change your thoughts, change your life. It is change your beliefs. Like, so your brain will work with you in changing your life Mm -hmm. versus battling the mind. Yeah. You say every person you date, every person you spend time with, Every person you interact with has to fit within your belief system. It strips you of blame, right? I mean, because if you think about it, it's so easy to just like blame our crappy situations on, oh, well, this person, oh, my spouse, oh, my parents, oh, my boss, oh, this, you know, and if they weren't, you know, if they weren't in my life, then I'd be happy. Yeah, the common denominator is us, right? I mean, you said your healing couldn't begin until you realized that you were the main character in your story of suffering. And we all know this personality type. And frankly, in some way, we've all been this personality type, by the way. It's just when it's, oh, this, oh, that, oh, circumstance, oh, that person. And the common denominator is us. That's it. And it doesn't matter what degree of that role you play. I mean, we do all play it. Right. Um, And and that's and this is why I kind of go back to, you know, well, 
until you have awareness, you don't recognize you have a choice. Well, congratulations. If you've made it this far in this podcast, guess what? You know you have a choice, right? So we are stripping you from these excuses and saying like, look, these things got installed. You're operating on defective programming. It is time to discover what that is and to remove it so you can truly take ownership and not perpetuate this story, not keep repeating these dynamics, to not keep dating the same kind of people to not keep perpetuating the suffering and really get yourself into this place of uh, of being in the driver's seat uh, and, and moving the direction you want to go in your life. Yeah, and I want to share a couple of examples before we go today, but something that you say that I just believe so fundamentally is that energy attracts like energy. That's just factually yes. true. Yeah. Um, and I can prove it every time I drive. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't have a care in the world and I've got the windows rolled down, I've got the music blaring, then I typically have, like, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm great. Like I get where I need to be. If I am completely stressed, totally distracted, late for something or very busy or feeling like I'm supposed to be in three places at once, then it, ironically, all of the other drivers suck. Have you ever noticed this? <laughs> yes. You're going to hit every red light when you're late if you're panicked about being late, right? That's exactly uh, right. You draw this energy. To, like you what do. you're bringing, what you're putting out is what you're drawing in. That's it. And, you know, when you, when you can start to really evaluate, all right, what is this energy that you're putting out? And uh, we actually just released a video. So we do these free videos every Monday that are called Mind Right Mondays. And we just released this one last, I think it was last week, about your vibe attracts your tribe. Right. And I'm talking specifically about this is that, you know, whatever energy thought patterns that you're having, like whatever you're like fleetingly thinking, that is sending out a beacon and a signal out to the world that is just like, hey, you know, I want to notice more of this. I want to experience more of this. And your brain is going to follow instructions. So if you're cre if you're putting instructions in that says, this is what I notice. The brain's going to say, okay, here's some more of that to notice. Pointing out that it works both ways is the power mm -hmm. in all of this. So yes. knowing that you can reprogram or reframe how you frame things is everything. The meaning that you assign to things is everything. In fact, that's the last thing that I wanted to talk with you about today is just this tendency that we all have when our brain defaults to the negative, when we are interacting with other people. And we have this tendency to draw thought bubbles over other people's heads yeah. all the time. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason we do this is because of the science and the methodology that you laid out earlier. But it's something that I noticed that women do, um, I would say far, far more than men, but we make so many assumptions, we tend to make negative assumptions. And we do it in relationships, but we do it with strangers. I mean, Bonnie, we do it with everybody. Everyone. Can yeah. you give us a couple of examples of how this works in real life? Yeah. So before I do that, you know, I want to make sure to make a point. Uh, there's a lot of information out there that will tell you to stop making assumptions, right? And I'm going to be the first one to tell you good luck with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're, yep. you're, you're just a lean, mean, assumption-making <laughs> machine. Like that is just how your brain works. So what I teach is that we have to condition your brain to make assumptions responsibly. And what I mean by that is that you're consciously participating in the assumption 
process. So yeah, we're making assumptions all the time. Like when um, you come home from work and let's say your spouse is, you know, is, is grumpy, just very nippy. And you're like, Oh gosh, is something bothering you? Or did I do something like, no, <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, you know, did you have a bad day? No. Uh. Okay. Uh, it's easy then to just think like, oh, they're mad at me or to want to get huffy back, right? Mm -hmm. To puff, you know, and to assume what that person is thinking or what their attitude implies, right? It's so easy to just do that because the brain does not like a mystery. It wants to fill in the blank, mm -hmm. right? It just wants to I go there. I see what you did there. I see what you uh, did you there. You got it? <laughs> It just wants to do that. So then that way it can move on because there's so much information that it's processing. It does not want to get hung up on a on an, an anomaly. An anomaly. It. We're there. We got there. Okay. Anomaly. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to get hung up on that. And so the brain wants to just like, okay, process the information, move on, process the information, move on. And so, yes, it's just making assumptions. But you have to become more aware of it, that you're doing it at work, in your relationship with your children, with your spouses, with everyone, that we assume what their actions meant, what their behavior implies, what their attitude is meaning, even when they directly say something that could be targeted at us. And it is easy to assume why they're saying that. And because they're telling you, and they could even say like, I, this is the reason I'm telling you that. But it's still an assumption because that person might be unconscious of what, how that emotion is impacting them in that moment too, right? So there's so many dimensions of recognizing how we make assumptions. But yet part of that filing system, so when we're talking about these negative core beliefs, when you start to examine it, when you start to unravel it, you're going to recognize that you have made a lifetime of assumptions that assume that this experience validates this core belief and it just latches itself on there and it's never challenged and it just continues to perpetuate the story. And so assumptions is a huge part. It's a guess, right? You are, you are assuming and just guessing what you think something is. So my golden rule is if you're going to make an assumption, you might as well make one that feels good to you. Does it feel good to assume that people don't like you? Does it feel good to assume that you're unliked or lovable? Does it feel good to assume that your husband doesn't desire you anymore? Those don't feel good, right? And since you're making up the story, why not make one up that feels better to who you are and how you live? Now, you can still investigate the truth on that, and you can ask, and you can confront people, and we talk about that, right? But if it's something as silly as people talking at the water cooler, and you walk up and they stop, mm -hmm. right? And you're never going to know what they were talking about, or somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? And you don't have, you'll never know why they did that versus assuming that they did it on purpose or they assume that you don't matter. Why not assume that that person maybe is on their way to the hospital? Maybe they have kids that are going nuts in the backseat of their car, right? Mm -hmm. Why not assume something that feels better to you? And that's a big part of what we talk about making assumptions responsibly. Yeah, we're so egocentric, really, because um, we make everything about us. And what's ironic is we're all walking around making everything about us. That's it. So we can't possibly all be correct. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I love the example that you give. Um, and you say, what are three, you know, a tool that you give us is yes. to say, what are three other ways that I can think about this? That means yeah. nothing about me that would be more empowering to me. Yeah. And some yeah. of those innocuous examples are some of the best to me, because that's the type of innocuous experience that you have walking up to the water cooler and people stop talking when you approach and you automatically assume they're talking about you or the, the, the driving example that you gave. There are 20 more examples. Those to me wear on us because we almost just accept them, take them for granted and run our programming all day. 
long. Yeah. And those little pieces are just going to start to influence your behavior because it, it's like triggering that program to activate, right? So that little experience of feeling worthless or feeling that you don't matter, you know, because maybe if you feel that you're, that you don't matter and someone just didn't open a door for you or didn't hold the door or they just like, you know, like you were walking right behind them and they, it, the door just closed on you, right? Like that little thing activates that program. It's this tiny fleeting little example of an assumption made that that person, uh, yet you don't matter enough for that person to hold that door. That little assumption gets filtered into the mind and it can just ruin or wreak havoc in that entire day, that week. Uh, and it'll just, once that program's activated, boy, that could lead to a path of that day, like a tornado of destruction is what we call it, where you could just have a freak out or a meltdown, or you could just launch on somebody that day. And, you know, it is about paying attention to the subtleties of the mind, you know, the subtle little, uh, thoughts, the fleeting little, you know, feelings, the little things that are happening. So we can use that reframe tool to start saying, okay, am I making an assumption here? And what are three other ways? Giving your brain options and then depersonalizing the behavior so that way you can then consciously choose how do I want to file this information versus that file just defaulting into whatever it is in your mind. And that's really what this whole process uh, is teaching you to do is just enhancing your emotional intelligence, uh, your emotional resiliency. Uh, it's allowing you to just uh, build your self-confidence and your self-worth. And it's to stop the flood of negativity that just continues to just keep uh, validating our old programming. Well, Bonnie, thank you for being such an inspiration to all of us in that effort. And thank you for being so open with the trials and challenges that you had growing up, which were many, many in number, but honestly, just serve to underscore how great your transformation is. And, yeah. and, and again, just really give you the right to talk about this and to teach. Oh, thank you so much, Ella. It's been my honor. My pleasure. Thanks. See you soon. Bye. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com, where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. Don't forget to join our Facebook page, and thanks for those phenomenal reviews in iTunes. Every great review helps, and we read every one. Thanks for listening, and thanks for inspiring me. You are, quite simply, awesome.